Okay, John, thank you for the invitation to come and to preach. Our church has been blessed by John's preaching in the past, so as the Lord wills, I hope you are blessed by my preaching today. Uh, we pray often for your congregation on Sunday mornings, as John did today. Uh, I've recognized Whether or not you realized it, worshiping with you a few times when you were meeting at Grace Baptist Church, which is very close to my house. So I would go to our service in the morning and in the afternoon a few times during the pandemic. I came and worshiped with you, and it was a wonderful experience. So thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Please open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm chapter 22. Last week, John preached from 1 Corinthians, and he preached about the death and the resurrection of Christ from the perspective of the Apostle Paul, from people who saw the death and resurrection of Christ from third perspective, third person perspective. Today, I have entitled today's sermon, The Crucifixion from Christ's Perspective. This might sound very odd to you, especially if you just look down at your Bible at the heading of Psalm 22. After all, it's a psalm of David. In other words, it was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth. On top of that, we know that King David was not crucified. In fact, King David, he died in his bed. It was a comfortable... In what sense does Psalm 22 narrate the crucifixion from Christ's perspective. The New Testament tells us this comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. The old sufferings of Christ and the subsequent oftentimes when we are working our way through the scriptures, the spirit of Christ in the prophets, he predicts his coming sufferings and his coming glories by means of typology. That is a word that comes from the Bible. What is a type? A type is a person or a place or an event or an object that foreshadows and prepares the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is often how we move to the cross from the Old Testament. For example, many Psalms of David clearly describe his own experiences as a Christ. Christ simply means anointed. He was the anointed king. But by God's design, David's experience in his own life, it often foreshadowed things that would happen later on in the life of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the everlasting king of God's coming kingdom. So by means of typology, there are many psalms that implicitly predicted the sufferings, and the subsequent glories of Jesus Christ. But then, there is Psalm 22. It is true that David may have written this psalm, but there have been many Christians over the last 2,000 years who have pointed out David experienced nothing like what we read in this psalm. This leads to the logical conclusion that in Psalm 22, we have the Spirit of Christ 
speaking through David, explicitly predicting in first person his future sufferings and his subsequent glories. As we will see later on today, the author of Hebrews actually says, thus says Jesus, and he quotes Psalm 22. These are the words of Jesus describing his crucifixion from his perspective. So if you're asking yourself, seeing as he was nailed to the woods and hung on the hill at Calvary, if you have ever wondered to yourself, what was he thinking? What was he praying? What was he saying as he died for your sins and for my sins? As his heart descended into darkness, he died. You have to look no further than Psalm 22. This psalm gives us the crucifixion from Christ's perspective. Please read with me, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by kind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you took me. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the affliction. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. 
It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who is not silent, but that you are a God who has spoken and continues to speak to your people through your written word. We thank you, Father, that by the power of the same Holy Spirit who inspired these things to be written for us, we are thankful that that Holy Spirit dwells within your people. Help us this morning, Father, to understand what you have revealed to us, to believe it and strengthen us to obey it. Help me, Father, to speak as if speaking your very words for your glory and Christ Jesus' glory and for the good of your people. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The argument of today's sermon is simple. Jesus Christ was crucified and then glorified for the worldwide praise of God's glory. Jesus Christ was crucified and then he was glorified so that all the world will give God glory. We're going to look at this passage in two big chunks. The first chunk is in verses 1 through 21. Christ crucified and glorified. And then we will look at the second chunk, verses 22 through 31, the worldwide praise of God's glory. So let's look at that first part, verses 1 through 21. Christ crucified and then glorified. I wonder if you have ever read the diary of a Christian who was suffering intensely. Oftentimes, this is not someone that we know personally right now, but somebody for feels like God is heart. But at the next moment, this same person is trusting in God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. And then you read on, and there's more trust. There's a glimpse of life. people over church cross is striving with God in prayer three times verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 11 and verses 12 through 21 Jesus alternates between feeling like God is heartless and faithless and yet trusting that God is loving and faithful. Each time this struggle intensifies, the need for an answer to prayer grows more urgent as we work our way through this psalm, but in the end, Jesus prevails, and his suffering turns into glory. Christian, does this at all sound like your own experience of suffering? Maybe a past experience of suffering, Maybe a present experience of suffering as you are wrestling with the Lord in prayer. It should. Why should it sound like our experience, as Jesus himself said? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We also have crosses to bear. So as we work our way through this passage, we are going to learn some very important lessons for what it looks like to suffer with Christ. Because we are people who have been crucified with Christ. 
Let's start by looking more closely this morning at verses 1 through 5. A few summers ago, our church, we always read through a book and discuss it during the summer on Wednesday nights. We were reading through a book called A Little Book on the Christian Life by John Calvin, just a little portion of the Institutes made accessible so that people can read it. And in that book, Calvin writes a big truth that is very hard for many of us to hear. It says this, We suffer because the Lord has willed it. Nothing happens apart from God's pleasure and providence. And God himself does nothing that isn't perfectly in order. Every terrible thing you experience is perfectly in order in God's providence. This prompted a member from our church who has suffered quite a bit to ask an excellent question. And that excellent question is this. Are Christians ever allowed to ask why? Are Christians ever allowed to ask God, why am I suffering like this? And the answer to that question is, it depends. It depends on why you are asking why. If you are asking why, while pointing a finger in order to call into question God's justice and God's love, you God, you God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you doing this to me? But no, you should not ask why. Job found that out. That's the way in which he asked God why. Questioning his justice, questioning his love. At the end of that book, he shuts his mouth, buries his face in the dirt. That is not how we should ask why. Why not? After all, God does promise us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He tells us that. That's why we should never ask why with a pointed finger. And we know from the Bible that God cannot lie. He's not going to forsake you. So don't question his justice. Don't question his love. But it still is okay for believers to ask why. We ask as believers, as people with faith, who are seeking a fuller and deeper understanding of God's love for us and his justice. That is when we do want to ask, why am I suffering like this? Because as Psalm 22 tells us, and as Matthew and Mark record for us, that is what Christ on the cross was asking. Jesus did it. We should do it. He hung on the cross. He felt forsaken by his Father. And look what he says in verses 1 through 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I must point out, there's an important difference here between Jesus and us. Jesus felt forsaken as he died on the cross because he was actually forsaken. He had actually been forsaken by his father. Protestant reformer Martin Luther marveled at this. He said, how could it be that God is forsaken by God? As finite men and women, you and I can only start to scratch the surface of this infinite mystery. On the one hand, we have to affirm that he was not forsaken as God. God the Son was not forsaken as God. This would have severed the eternal Trinitarian union between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But as Scripture makes clear, that is impossible. Triune God always was, always is, and always will be one. 
Son of God was not forsaken as God, rather for us and for our salvation. God the Son was forsaken as the man, Christ Jesus. Yes, the eternal union between the Heavenly Father and His incarnate Son, it remained intact. And yet, until Christ died, their uniquely intimate communion and fellowship was completely severed. Done away with. When Jesus was forsaken by God, I agree with those who conclude that Jesus suffered the second death first. Jesus suffered the second death first. In other words, before he physically died, Jesus suffered through the deathly torments of hell here on earth. That's what was going on at the cross. After all, Jesus repeatedly referred to hell during his teaching as the outer darkness. And what happened while Jesus was dying on the cross? Quite literally, in the middle of the day, the sun stopped shining. He died in total darkness. The Apostle Paul adds that the damned in hell will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. At the cross, Jesus suffered under the wrath of God. And as we have just seen, he suffered away from the presence of God. This is why for Christ, the cross of Christ was hell for Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you need to let that sink in. The cross of Christ was hell for Christ. Why? Because there is hell to pay for your sins. That is true for all of us. There is hell to pay for your sins. If you continue refusing to turn from your sins, if you continue refusing to put your trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for salvation, who's going to pay that hell for your sins? You are. You will pay the price for your sins. You will spend eternity in darkness, separated from the presence of God, the source of all that is good. You are a Christian. You have trusted in Christ. The good news is, he has paid the price in full for your sins. That price has been paid. It was paid in your place at the cross. You and I are forgiven, as the hymn says, only because he was forsaken in our place. That's one reason why Christians can trust that God is for us even when we feel like we are forsaken by him. The question is, as Christ hung on the cross, what enabled him to trust the Lord even as he really was forsaken by his God? How could he trust? when he was forsaken? And the answer is that he had a sure and certain knowledge of who God is. He understood his attributes and his past actions. We see this starting in verse 3. He says, yet you, God, are holy. In other words, you, God, are set apart. You are above reproach. You are above any accusation of wrongdoing. That's what it means here, that God is holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. Why is God enthroned on the praises of Israel? And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. This happens many times in the Bible. Think about the Israelites when they were in Egypt. We were told that they cried to God while they were in slavery, and God heard. And then what did he do? He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Or think about David's life when he was on the line 
His life was on the line with the Philistines in the capital of Gath. He said, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. As Jesus hung forsaken on the cross, he trusted that God was going to answer his prayer for deliverance. Why? Because God had done this over and over and over again with his people, and Jesus knew it. So Christian, when we feel forsaken by God, we have to remember who God is. We have to remember that he is holy. We have to remember that this is a God who hears and who answers the prayers of his people, not just in theory, but he has done it in practice over and over and over again. Our minds have to bring our feelings into submission to the word and to the promises of God. But, as we see in verses 6 through 11, you can pray for deliverance. God answers such prayers, but that doesn't mean that he does it right away. It's very likely, in many instances, that your suffering will continue. How do we knew that? It did for Jesus. As Christ hung on the cross, not only was he forsaken by God, he was also despised and rejected by men. We see this starting in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Indeed, it's exactly what we read about in the Gospels. According to Matthew, those who passed by Jesus as he was hanging on the cross derided him, wagging their heads. Luke adds for us, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked Jesus, saying, He saved others, can he not save himself? He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now. He desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. It's very important for us to Notice the assumption that they have when they are deriding Jesus as he hangs on the cross. It's an assumption that is quite common among unbelievers. It's an assumption that is very tempting even for believers to think. These mockers assume that if God loves you, then God will bless you with health and happiness. If God loves you, God will not allow you to suffer. That's what they assumed while they mocked Jesus on the cross. Assume, just for the sake of argument for a moment, that that is true. This means, if you are suffering, and I know you are suffering, because you're a human living in this fallen world, it means if you are suffering, then you've either done something terribly wrong, and or you are trusting in a God who does not love you, and he will not deliver you. You might as well be praying to Spider-Man or Batman. If all of these things are true, you actually deserve to be mocked. If these things are true. As he hung on the cross, how did Jesus know that this wasn't true? How did Jesus know that there's not a one-to-one connection between suffering and sin, his own sin? Look at verses 9 through 10. Yet you, God, are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust. At my mother's breast, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Indeed, you can think back to what the angel Gabriel said to the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son 
of God. He was sinless. He was not up there suffering because he had done anything wrong. And it's not just God's son, but as the father reiterated to Jesus throughout his ministry, he said, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Have you ever thought about why was God pleased with his beloved son? What was the specific reason? We are actually told. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Think about that. Why did God love him? Because he was willing to lay down his life. This is quite amazing, because it means that far from disproving God's love for him, Christ's suffering at the cross was the surest proof that God loved him. Nothing else that he had ever done was surer proof that God loved him than his willingness to go to the cross. And Christian, as we suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, we heard this earlier this morning in our prayer of praise, the same is true for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Doesn't that mean that God doesn't love us? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, this is why we can pray along with Jesus in verse 11. Be not far from me, God, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And we can pray that and we know that that prayer is going to be answered. We know that. I'd like to end there. That would be a wonderful high note. But once again, as we see in verses 12 through 21, the suffering can continue. It doesn't mean that the prayer is going to be answered right away. The suffering may, in fact, intensify. It did for Jesus, as he was, so to speak, on the cross, hunted to death. Common description of what was going on. In Shailen's song, Through My Eyes, which is about the crucifixion of Christ from Christ's perspective, he imagines Jesus saying this, I'm slapped, trapped, as a pack of jackals attack, Ever look into the eyes of one who longs for your homicide? Their eyes are telling me they want me dead. Their hunger for my blood must be fed. That's exactly what we see in verses 12 through 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion. I don't think it's a coincidence that later on in scripture the devil is described as a ravening and roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. This is ultimately a spiritual thing. He adds in verses 16 through 18, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I'm sure many of you know that as Jesus was crucified, they pounded nails through his hands and through his feet. And yet, Jesus says here, I can count all of my bones. What does that mean? 
see this in a couple of other psalms, it means that none of his bones were broken. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus' bones were not broken? On the night of Passover, during Israel's exodus from Egypt, God commanded that the Israelites would sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their house to shield them from the wrath of God, which was passing through Egypt. And God specified that none of that lamb's bones could be broken. Jesus is making the point that he, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It is his shed blood that covers us from the wrath of God. Also, just as the Spirit of Christ and David predicted, we read in Psalm 19, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says in our passage, Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And as all of this is going on, down below him, he is dying a miserable death. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So as Apostle John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, including this here in verse 15, I thirst. And at least in the thoughts of Jesus' heart, this leads to one last desperate cry for help. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. This, of course, is something that many Christians throughout church history have prayed since that day. For example, in the year 177 AD, there was a vicious persecution of Christians that broke out in what we now know as modern-day France. It was in the city of Lyon. And one of the victims was a slave girl named Blandina. Because she refused to renounce Christ, she was terribly tortured. I'm now reading from the account of her torture from church historian Eusebius, he says this, her entire body was mangled and broken. Then she was suspended on a stake in the shape of a cross in the arena and left to be devoured by wild beasts. However, when the beasts did not come near her, she was taken down and cast into prison. Later, she was scourged, just like Jesus was, thrown to the wild animals, placed on a red-hot iron seat so that her flesh was burned. Finally, she was placed in a net and throwed before a bull who gored her to death. One of many, many stories like this from the history of the church. As Eusebius says, her constant prayers while this was happening greatly inspired her fellow victims. Constant prayers greatly inspired her fellow victims. Really? How did they inspire her fellow victims? After all, she died. 
Did her prayers actually do anything to deliver her from the awful torture and punishment that she was going through? And given that Jesus died on the cross, didn't his prayers go unanswered? Praying for deliverance, didn't they go unanswered? No. Even before he died, Jesus could say, as we see in verse 21, you, God, have rescued me. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He can speak as if the salvation is already accomplished, even as he is dying. Having prevailed in prayer, he knew that his subsequent glories were a foregone conclusion. Jesus was well aware, and he had told many people over and over again that on the third day he was going to rise out of the grave. Jesus knew that he was soon going to trade a cross for a crown. He knew it. He was certain of it. And if you, like Blandina, entrust your body and your soul to Jesus Christ in life and in death as your faithful Savior, the exact same thing is true for you and me. Anything can happen to us in this life. Anything awful. We can pray for deliverance and die and our prayers will be answered. The Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. He knew that he was about to die. He took up his cross. He faithfully followed Jesus. We can proclaim the same thing he said about himself. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Maybe it will include deliverance from suffering in this life. Certainly it will include deliverance from suffering in this life through death, in resurrection. Now to say the least, when you think about these truths, there is only one right way to respond to the salvation of God. And that is to praise God by giving him the glory and doing it forever and ever. And that's exactly what happens in the second part of this passage. We see in verses 21, 22 through 31, the worldwide praise of God's glory. That's where all of this is leading. In verses 22 through 31, we see an earthquake of worldwide praise. The epicenter is in verse 22. That's where Jesus Christ himself praises and then in verses 23 through 26, we see the Lord's praises rippling through Israel. And finally, in verses 27 through 31, we see those praises reverberating all the way to the ends of the earth. First, Jesus, he offers the praise to God's glory. According to the author of Hebrews, Jesus, he suffered on the cross. Why did he do it? In order to bring many sons, in order to bring God's people to glory. The author of Hebrews then adds in chapter 2, This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call God's people's brothers, saying, and he then quotes verse 22 as the words of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. I will tell of your name, Lord, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, literally in the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Jesus starts the worship. And as we see in the book of Acts, who originally comprised the church? The church was originally made up of ethnically Jewish believers. So it should come as no surprise that as the church's worship leader, Jesus begins by calling all Jewish believers to praise and to glorify God for answering their prayers for salvation, ultimately through his death and his resurrection. 
Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. God heard. God answered. And according to the Old Testament, if you made a vow to God, and then he answered your prayers, you were supposed to do something very specific. You were supposed to praise God by offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving and then throwing a celebratory feast. And this is exactly what those believers do in verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And as the founder of the feast, Jesus then blesses his guests in verse 26. May your hearts live forever. That is his blessing. But of course, even though the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the Jew first, it is also for the Greek. It is for ethnic Gentiles from all nations. You have been working your way through the book of Genesis, and over and over again, God promised Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The Psalms lead off with the promise in Psalm 2, God the Father to God the Son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. The Spirit of Christ, speaking through David, predicts that God is going to fulfill all these promises. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Earlier this morning, during his pastoral prayer, as John noted, these promises right now are being fulfilled in and through you and me. Most of us are those Gentiles who are at the ends of the earth. As Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he is now ruling over all the nations. Might not look like it to us, but that's what's happening. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Exactly what Psalm 22 predicted is coming to pass. As sinners, we are people who could not save ourselves from death. But when we heard the good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again, when we turned from our sins, when we trusted in him, he declared us to be righteous in his sight. We are now the ones described here in Psalm 22 who bow before King Jesus. We are the people who are worshiping the Lord. And not only us, this includes all Christians in all times and in all places of all ages. You might be here this morning. You're not an adult. You're a kid. Guess what? Same Christ, same salvation. You turn from your sins. You trust in him, your hearts, and also receive eternal forgiveness and praise the Lord. One day, Jesus is going to come again, going to finally and fully save us from all our suffering. He is going to bring us into glory. This includes people who are alive now, people who are, as the psalm puts it, yet to be unborn. We are told in the Bible by Jesus himself, 
that we will come from east and west and recline at table to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What better proof is there? Jesus Christ crucified, that he rose from the dead for the worldwide praise of God's people. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that in your goodness and in your love and in your kindness, you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus, we praise you. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made yourself nothing, took the form of a servant, and for us and for our salvation died on the cross. Spirit, we pray that you will please fill our hearts, and help us not only to believe in these things, but to glory in them. Help us to be people who, having died with Christ, take up our cross daily and follow him. Pray, Father, that you will help us to proclaim this good news that we have heard to the ends of the earth so that more and more and more people take up their cross and follow him. We ask all of these things in Jesus.